0: Hello and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Marus, founder and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. As we emerge from the pandemic, consumers and businesses see a future far different than what we envisioned before COVID shut down the world. Some of that future depends on what was accomplished over the last eight months. Before the pandemic, digital transformation was optional for many organizations when COVID-19 took hold, necessity dictated that organizations became digital. Remote work became the norm and the agenda for technology investment changed as consumers and businesses expected experiences similar to what they received from Amazon, Netflix, Zoom, and Uber. But the future of banking is far from clear. There are optimists who believe the industry will transform itself through modern technology to be more than it is today. There are also pessimists who believe traditional banking is dead. The reality is probably somewhere in between. We are fortunate to be joined today by Theo Priestley, globally recognized futurist and international speaker, author, and authority on the future of business, technology, and society. He is also working on a collaborative book entitled, The Future Starts Now, where futurists from around the world share their diverse thoughts on a world post-pandemic. Welcome to the show, Theo. So as a futurist, I'm sure you have many people come up to you to ask, do you ever see a year like this coming in your crystal ball? Well, obviously, while something like this may have been discussed over a cocktail or so, the last half year caught all this by surprise. It, It also dramatically changed all the dynamics around people, technology, social norms, and the rules of business in all industries. What are the most significant changes you've seen since the beginning of the pandemic and how are businesses and consumers adjusting to these changes from your perspective?
1: One, I must be like one of the world's worst futurists because I just didn't see this coming for a start.
0: <laughs> you know, and I, I left a particular
1: role to do full-time speaking in, at the end of February. And then literally in the first two weeks in March, um, everything got canceled. So yeah, as a futurist, yeah, I suck. <laughs> Um, (laughs) Well,
0: I know that one, yeah.
1: (laughs) It's been really interesting watching this transition and this pandemic happen and, and people reacting to it. So what I've noticed is that the pandemic has been a massive accelerant for businesses. And it's also exposed a lot of dead wood as well at the same time. So I think we have been, I guess, plodding along a lot of the time. Uh, filling time up with projects to make ourselves look busy, planning those projects in large amounts of time and filling it up with lots of activities, because we didn't really have a deadline to to meet as such. Now the pandemic came along and says, "Well, actually, you do. You really do have a deadline now, because if you don't change in the next few months, there's not going to be a business for you at the end." So. The pandemic has almost given this firm stake in the ground and says, you've got to change by this date. When we emerge, you have to change. Otherwise, that's you. So all of a sudden, we've seen all this activity around businesses having to change and having to change quickly. And as a result, it's almost taken people by surprise in the sense that, oh, do you know what? We can do change rather quickly. You know, it didn't need to take two to three years. You could do it in the space of months. What were we doing all this time? And then, from a you know the dead wood perspective, um, I think it's exposed a lot of business models as being extremely weak, as having a foundation on very shaky or shifting sands. It's exposed the economy in that a lot of the economy has been built on just purely service-driven activities and nothing that has been value add or that had a means of production. So anything that relied on a flow of money where people were commuting, for example. the Pret is the great example, I guess. You know, all these coffee shops that are hurting and have closed down relied on the flow of money coming into that particular area because people commuted. Now, all of that has changed. Um, you have corporate headquarters closing down, large corporations saying people can work from home forever now if they choose to. That completely changes the, the flow of money dynamic where services are gonna to have to be located. It's completely killed some businesses. So companies that were built around servicing headquarters like cleaners and plant people and, and all that kind of sort of thing, and little vans that came around with the sandwiches, where are they now? They've gone. It's been a bit of a massive wake-up call for a, a lot of sectors. And then from a personal point of view, we're all struggling to manage. You know, A lot of people are freelance and they work from home anyway, so to them it's just nothing new but for a lot of office-based people who, who are now thrust into an environment that they're not used to,
0: um, they're having to really adapt to this change. It's interesting, too, because the whole dynamic of what the future is going to be has changed so much. The definitions have changed. So while people talked about digital transformation, it's not like they were really doing it. I, I talk about the fact that banking, especially, was faking digital. So putting something on the app, they thought that was digital, when all of a sudden they realized that consumers are comparing the opening of an account that takes five to 10 minutes to the ability to get a loan from a fintech firm that takes 35 seconds. And the whole dynamic of what that digital means and how somebody moves along that digital transformation process, as you said, everything was sped up quite a bit. Which of the changes that you discussed do you expect to be long-term disruptions as opposed to short-term adjustments that may not continue going forward? So the long-term effects, I think, are the remote and flexible working environment will stay
1: with us. Um, I read a couple of surveys, um, although they were vendor-based, one that basically alluded to 90% of the office-based workforce never want to be in a physical office ever again full-time. And anything between 20 to 40% of corporate headquarters may close businesses don't see the need for a corporate headquarters. So there's got to be massive shift in that sense. And it was funny because I was supposed to talk about the future of work um, at a conference in March, which got delayed till October. And my slides have completely changed. What I thought was the future of work back in March is completely different now because of what's going on. I don't see short-term effects here. I was thinking about this the other day. You know, we have annual flu shots, You know, and flu is something that we've never eradicated. You know, And I think in history, we've only ever eradicated like two diseases, smallpox being one of them. I think coronavirus and COVID is going to be around with us like the flu. And we will have annual flu shots and we will just have to live with the fact that this is far more virulent or far more dangerous and disruptive than the flu is because of how we are having to physically change our habits. So... I don't see uh, short term effects out of this. I see very sort of long term
0: ramifications in terms of how we work, how we live. That's interesting because if I asked that question three months ago, I think that we would think that there were certain aspects of this that would be a short term aspect. And I agree with you that what I thought was short term now looks more permanent. I get more and more concerned about government stimulus packages that are faking that people are at work. So in the United States, our unemployment rate is, I believe, nowhere near what the reality is because we keep on giving small businesses money. They want to keep their employees employed, even though their businesses may not even be open. And that transfer of money looks great until that people say, we can't do this forever, or, or maybe we can it changes the whole dynamics of what works. And, and you know, you, you mentioned about the business space of corporate real estate. Our center cities are going to transform, not just from the, the fact that there's going to be less activity, but, it, you know, you have the high rent districts and the low rent districts in big cities. And a lot of people are saying, you know what, I may move back home to in the United States would be to the Midwest instead of Los Angeles and San Francisco and New York City and still do my job remotely. And now some of those companies have to say, do we really want to pay you that that spiff you got for for being in a high rent district? I mean, the whole the, the trickle down effect of what's going on, we haven't seen. And, you know, I, I talk about the fact that in uh, June, we would have thought that by now we'd be back to normal, whatever normal is. And I think there's more people that believe that next March, a year from when it started, we're going to look more like we do today than whatever that next new normal is. You know, you're, you're currently working on a book which is actually a collaboration of insights from futurists and leaders around the world. The contributors discuss some of the geopolitical and social economic impacts that they believe are occurring and how their, it's impacting how we work and how we live our daily lives. Are people and businesses really embracing the potential of the moment we're in? You know, a lot of people are focused on the negative. I believe, and I I think you believe, that it's really a transformational moment to change everything in your life for a positive way. Do you agree? I mean, do you see that businesses and people are starting to view it as that? For businesses and for people
1: who are, I guess, in a privileged position, it's a, a, a land of opportunity in a sense. We have been given this opportunity to change how we live, change our habits, change our business practices as well. And like I said, you know, at the start, uh, I think for those who don't take this as an opportunity to adapt and change something bad, you know, and there will be negative impacts for them. I think those who can change will certainly see some positivity. So, you know, there's positivity around the perception of their business being strong and has survived uh, survived this. There's a, uh, the positivity of forging new relationships uh, where there were none before. So one of the things that I've discussed previously in in podcasts and things is if your business is strong enough to emerge from this and you had partners supply chain partners and so forth you know are those partners in countries that you now want to deal with because they were set up the right way to deal with the pandemic so well the UK is, is, is a great example if I'm in South Korea and I have a supply chain partner in the UK would I want to keep that partnership because of the way that the, the government and the way that the people and the way that the country in general has actually managed its way through this pandemic? Um, would I want to be associated with or would I see that business relationship as a strong one compared to somewhere in New Zealand where they were able to manage this pandemic? They were able to react in the right way, keep the lights on, keep businesses going, etc. So you might find business attitudes moving towards countries who dealt with this in the right way, supported their workers, kept the lights on, kept business and, and the economy going and the impact down versus the ones who really mismanaged their way through this and bumbled their way and made a lot of bad decisions. Without so, naming
0: names. <laughs> of course,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is a great opportunity to review everything around your life, uh, whether it's business or personal. You know, lo- lots of the things that we take for granted now, do we really need them around us? You know, I've got a car that's sitting outside, you know, it's for it. I mean, it's 15 years old, uh, 150,000 miles on the clock. I don't care. I mean, I had the uh, plants in it yesterday from the garden center, um, and it's just covered in leaves, but it sits outside because I'm not doing as much travel as I used to. Do
0: I need that anymore? And, uh, you know, I, I, you start to question things when you're in this situation. Getting into the banking world, which you're familiar with, you know, we talked about the fact that a lot of banks had to move to digital They to open accounts, if nothing else, that they could no longer just fake it. But we find that the consumer has actually grown in their expectations of what they expect their life partners to be as far as businesses. And they're being impacted by so many outside organizations that even when the banks have improved their digital performance, they're even rating themselves lower than they did last year on digital maturity. What is your perspective on what I'll call the digital performance gap in banking, right now, this is a really interesting one. When you boil down what banking is, especially from
1: a consumer point of view, it's very transactional. In the background, you know, I've got my app. Um, you know, I've got used Google Pay, for example. I've still got my cards, which I rarely use now because of the pandemic. I've just completely put it all in. So there's another shift in habit there. But banking, to me, has been—it's always been a transactional nature. It's always been something that was fairly invisible. It was never really intrusive until you had to pay fees for something. Um, or you needed a loan, in which case, you know, nowadays you, your bank is probably one of the last people that you go to for a loan because you can get it from other places. There's a massive gap and there's a massive opportunity here, I see, because you know, even open banking, for example, you go out in the street and people are like, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. Open banking, what? what? I already have a bank and it's open. There you go. But open banking is a, is an interesting one because I really don't think that we pushed the possibilities of what you could do with open banking all we got was a set of aggregator apps that basically allowed you to suck in all your financial data from other banks and have it all in one place and then some made some loose recommendations about your lifestyle and your money and so forth but there is so much value add that a bank could do by partnering up with other organizations that are not financial so your utilities companies you know your I don't know funeral parlors and all this kind of sort of thing where your financial information and your lifestyle can affect the other services that you have around it. And your bank obviously could act as a facilitator to find you the right deal. Why do I need to go to like confused.com to find, or money-saving expert to find different deals and things when I deal with the bank all the time and it has? You know, the bank is where all my financial information sits and they're the ones who should be analysing and recommending better services to me, but instead they remain in the background, it remains just a transactional layer, and they don't offer me any financial advice in that sense on a daily basis that's really meaningful for me, and you know, to change my habit for the better and, and almost step up to the financial literacy side as well. So although there's the performance gap in terms of digital transformation, there's also the opportunity gap for financial literacy, which I think banks have
0: completely ignored And so their benefit for the consumer to be more literate, um, to a degree at least, I mean, they already are aware of fees and everything else that goes wrong in the banking world, but to make them more astute as to how to use their services is a benefit, and it can be delivered digitally. You know, you, you talk about open banking and I've had interviews with Emirates NBD that has a a platform for the mid aged consumer that have brought in gaming and, and music and entertainment and discounts and all these other things to a major brand new digital platform. And Keisha Bank has something for actually the very young pre-banking public that they build all these other elements and the financial model Is actually around the third parties bearing the load of the financial burden of the the accounts. But they have two or three million consumers that are already on the platform, of which maybe a million do banking, but they're going to follow them through their lives here. And it's going to be like one of those apps you're into every day and the habits there. And again, financial literacy, the embedded banking and make it so it's very easy. And oh, by the way, if you want to buy something on these platforms, you know you're going to be using the banking services. It's it's interesting because as we look at all these elements, it it takes data and the application data. You know, we I, I kid about the fact that banks have always had the data and they've always had amazing reports. They could tell me more about me than I know, but they don't do a really good job of showing me that they know these things. So when we look at augmented reality, and we look at robotics and all this, we we see that this will probably replace a lot of the, or make the automation a lot of routine tasks while combining humans and AI to open the door for more efficiency and improve customer experiences. What do you see as the future of AR, VR, MR, robotics in the new world order and in banking? This week, Apple announced some
1: new gear, uh, iPhone uh, 12, I think it is now, yeah, and the iPhone 12 Pro. Putting aside all jokes about the lack of innovation, real innovation, you know, because it's all very incremental. The really interesting thing that I, that came out of that that I took away from that was that the iPhone 12 Pro has a uh, 3D photogram, the um, lidar. <laughs> we'll yeah. just use that yeah. term. We'll just use that term. You, you essentially have a portable 3D scanner where you can scan your environment and then. You can use augmented reality to create things, to filter, people can build apps on. Now, everyone bangs on about glasses, and I really can't stand the whole paradigm of glasses because it's the most unnatural thing for a lot of us. Um, I don't want to put something on my face to experience something when I literally have this in my hand 24-7. And there are 11 million iPhone 11s out there. So it's no stretch of the imagination to say iPhone 12 will you know, hit 10 million and plus. And so you think you have 10 million portable 3D scanners out there that are just going to map the world and people will do it. They'll play with it and all that data will be sucked in. And, and essentially, you're almost building the metaverse for Apple. Consumers are doing that already, you know, for them. So from an augmented reality point of view, you know, I think that's rather exciting. And I just can't be bothered with the whole glasses paradigm. Uh, Virtual reality, I think, is always going to remain niche. Um, It's always going to be a tech toy, in a sense. Um, Even when people talk about training on virtual reality, we've shifted the goalposts again with this pandemic. Are you really expecting me to, as a company, to ship you a virtual reality headset for training that you need training to use a virtual reality headset at home? It's not going to happen. So that that whole paradigm is dead in itself, and and so VR. And again, to experience virtual worlds, um, you don't need VR because the, you know you don't need a helmet to experience Fortnite, and they're running concerts and things like that. So all you need is a browser. So I think anything that takes away a hardware technological layer um, will win. So VR. I think it's going to stall. It's not really, there's always the perception that it's more advanced than where it is with the platforms. And we're still three steps behind, like back in lawnmower man territory from the early 80s, 90s. Um, AR, I think, is going to be really interesting because Apple is now making it so accessible for people just to play around with it and get to grips with that paradigm and how it will work. In banking, uh, probably not so much because it's really gimmicky. Both of those kind of of things are really gimmicky. Where AI comes in, I think, is making sense of the data that we generate from a financial point of view, our habits in our life. I mean, I'm really interested in what Google does eventually when it comes out with a banking product. Because, I mean, I'm an Android person and it knows everything about me, knows where I walk because it tracks me on Google Maps, etc. Knows where I shop because I use Google Pay. And so I'm really interested to see what it makes use of all that information in terms of making suggestions, in terms of saying, oh, you don't need to buy coffee today because you bought three cups already. So maybe go easy and buy a bottle of water instead. I want intelligent decisions and intelligent recommendations to come out of this. And this is where I think banks, again, can step up. With the whole open banking initiative, instead of just creating another Me Too app that's an aggregator that everyone else has done, start giving me intelligent real intelligent sort of recommendations and decisions and things like that. I don't want to know about a holiday because frankly, nobody's going to go on holiday anymore. So I don't want to see these kind of recommendations. I wanted to know, you know, in context, what's going on in the world and then relay that to me, according to my financial information and how my spend and what I've been doing in the last three months, for example, just in general, and give me those hints and give me those tips. And, and again, Banking doesn't need to be that thing in the background. It can be something that actually
0: steps forward. Do you see that happening? I mean, you mentioned Google. We know about Apple. We know about Facebook and, you know, these other platforms. They have all this additional information. Your bank will not be able to process in our lifetime, I don't think, recommendations based on where you are, because that layer of information may be owned by Google and Apple, for instance, and by these other platforms. And my concern is... The more that organizations give away their data platform and their intelligence platform, you know, these banks that are partnering with Google, you go, okay, I get it. It may get you more customers, but you're not getting relationships. That intelligence layer may be owned by somebody else. And you know, banks may still get the digital identity platform. You know, they may be the owners of that overall digital identity, but they're going to be getting the information from other organizations. They're not going to be processing all themselves. It's it's going to be interesting because it it changed everything. And when you look at AI, when you look at robotics and, and what goes on in the financial institution, this is obviously not all good news. This is changing the future of work as we discussed a little bit earlier. What do you think? It's going to happen as we look at the future work and and the number of employees we need to process X. Isn't this a relatively disruptive thing with not only how organizations work, but who the people are that are going to work in these organizations, but also how governments respond? Because the future of employment may change dramatically.
1: You're going to experience a lot of high degree of automation. I remember, and I quote this one quite a lot, Lemonade, for example, when they released the the sort of bit of news, which was a nice bit of PR spin, but processing a claim in three seconds, you know, from start to finish. Um, And that obviously blurs the lines of what it means to have a front, a middle and a back office, because essentially you've got this abstracted AI layer making decisions up to certain service levels and financial limits where you don't need people at all. Uh, And in this case, obviously it was an underwriting decision. Uh, It was a small item, but the guy who, who made the, the, the claim obviously received from the time he put the details in the app and pressed send. It took three seconds for the, the algorithm to come back and say, Yeah, claim approved. The money's going to be in your bank at the end of the week. This is going to be highly disruptive because then you've got this kind of, you know, ah, I don't need this many work supervisors and I don't need this management layer and I don't need, you know, 30 underwriters. I only need 10 you know, and they deal with the high value cases and the ones that require a bit more thought. Um, And that's the theory, I guess. Where it kind of falls down is this whole, let's retrain the workforce to do more meaningful tasks because we've all seen, you know, as soon as something like this comes along, digital transformation or process transformation or process improvement, the first thing that gets announced is um, FTE cuts. And you see tens of thousands of people being told that they're going to be made redundant in, in the next two years. And, and what do you do with all those people? Because all you have is really this glut of people who travel around different banking institutions to try and find a job, but each one is essentially falling in line with the others by doing those transformational works. And so eventually it's going to be like um, musical chairs. Eventually you're going to be that person where you don't have a chair to, to sit on anymore. What do you do with that person? And uh, the barrier, you know, the lowest rung in the ladder, in a sense, for, for a career is
0: starting to get higher and higher because of that level of automation It's starting to remove the lower levels of work. In much the same way that farming and manufacturing in the past have disrupted people, which is what's changing the political ramifications you know, globally, where, you you know, the, the same people that follow the Brexit movement are are very similar in demographics to those that follow our current president. So you, you have a situation that there's disgruntled people that are underemployed or not employed.
1: If you're in those kind of, sort of situations where you're in a, a service center or a call center, the level of disruption, I think, uh, I I kind of likened it to the the coal industry in the UK back in the Thatcher days when they started to um, uh, close down mining towns. And that mining town had been in existence for decades and that's all they knew. Um, and of course, when you close that industry down, you, you essentially kill off that entire community or town or village. And how do you retrain that many people who have literally had every generation of family been in that industry. And it's the same with something like a call centre where you have towns that have been built around industrial estates with large buildings filled with three, 400 people all taking calls. And when you introduce voice AI and chatbots that remove first and sometimes second level queries and calls, what, what are you going to do with all those people, all those empty buildings, all those unemployed people? Because they can't you can't retrain 500 people, for example, into other jobs that easily. You're
0: not going to teach them Python.
1: Have you seen the, um, the adverts in the UK this week about retraining? No. So uh, there's been a lot of uh, bad blood about the, the way the government is treating the, the, the creative arts industry. They're basically pushing them under a bus because they're, they're not supporting the industry. Um, they're not getting the right levels of uh, support, financial support to keep the lights on. Cinemas are closing, theatres are closing, that kind of thing. And so they're not seen as value-add, even though they pump billions, tens of billions into the economy. They released a set of posters, and you have to look this up, because um, one of them is basically a ballerina, um, and it's like, Fatima needs to retrain, and she can retrain into cyber. And that was it. You know, who needs arts when you can do cyber? Um, And so that's been absolutely taken to task. But what what's interesting is, is, is that I've seen this before, and I saw this 10, 20 years ago with a previous government where they basically told everyone to learn about computers. And so you've had people retraining to learn HTML and things like that, and everyone abandoned trades. So all trade skills like plumbers and electricians and things like that, you had this massive skills gap where everyone was learning computers, but nobody was actually doing anything physically productive so you had this gap. Who filled that gap was the most unlikely people. It was doctors and dentists who basically looked at their life and said, I'm getting paid peanuts to work 100 hours a week. And here I can actually earn almost double and dictate the hours I want to do and have a better quality of life. And so you had doctors and nurses and dentists and all those people that should have been valued abandoning their posts and retraining to be the, the the skills that were left behind because everyone was told to learn about computers. And I can see this happening again with this kind of message. So but well, you can't retrain an entire workforce and then expect that there's not a negative impact on the other
0: side. From a competitive perspective in the financial service industry, you're in the hotbed of competitiveness in the whole European Union and there's the fintechs and there's the open banking, there's the big firms. Do you see the end of branches as we know? Do you see the end of legacy banks? Do you see the, you know, the big techs taking over, or do you see smaller fintechs taking over? Because it's changed so much even since COVID. Because the financial lifeline of small fintechs is dried up, and and VCs are only spending on the biggest fintech. So and in the mid-range financial institutions, traditional banks, they're also being squeezed because they can't invest in the high tech and their legacy thinking gets in the way sometimes. So how do you how do you see this playing out? So it's interesting. I read something last week, I think it was, where
1: VCs are now starting to abandon the B2C fintechs, so the banks, uh, or the challenger banks or neo banks, if you want. Because the, the, to me, the, the, there's never been any money. There's no profit margin in that. So all you're really doing is sucking in VC money, and then they're never going to get a return. And so now VCs are basically saying, well, we don't want to do another Monzo or another Starling Bank or whatever. We now want to do B2B banking, because there's much more money in that, because we know we can get fees. So there's a profit margin there. The, the cool kids on the block are now being abandoned by the VCs. And it's been an interesting journey because fin, the fintech banks, the new challenger banks are really just banks, because th- they've realized that they can't do anything different. They have to basically copy the old model that's been successful for hundreds of years to survive. So all that, oh yeah, you could do current account on your phone and that's all you need, you know? And then it's like, well, how'd you make money? Oh, well, I have not really thought about that. Uh, We'll
0: have to charge fees. (gasps) So you're just like my old bank then. Oh, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We didn't see it first, but as you said, a lot of these FinTechs were simply digital models of what we've been used to. We haven't seen really completely, I mean, Lemonade is such a different platform But it's still insurance.
1: Here's one for your listeners out there, actually. You know, free innovation or whatever. I would love to see the banking version of WeChat because you have that platform where, you know, literally in China, you can't do anything without WeChat. And WeChat started off as just a messaging app. And this is what really disappointed me about WhatsApp because WhatsApp was a messaging app that you could have built an entire ecosystem and then never left it. Um, and if a bank or a new challenger or a new kind of financial institution come along and say, well, do you know, I'm going to build a platform that is not about banking. It's about attaching all these different value-add services, but you have to come through us.
0: And we're a bank also. Well, it's funny because I went to China in, in January to Shenzhen. And it was impossible for me to pay for anything because they don't accept cards. They accept WeChat. Yep. But you have to have a, a Chinese relationship to have WeChat. So thank goodness I was with a tour guide who, who had all those relationships that we end up paying <laughs> back. But, but you, you, you don't realize till you get there that traditional payments are, are gone yep. there. There's no reason to it. Finally, you're in Edinburgh. I'm in Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, both of our personal and business lives have been dramatically changed since March. Um, as you said, your your timing couldn't have been worse. If you were a futurist, you kind of lost some credentials there. <laughs> you know, travel halted, events canceled. How are you dealing with the pandemic yourself and what do you see your future routine looking like?
1: Obviously, it was a bit of a struggle at the beginning of the year. And it was almost a, a mental sort of exercise to sort of, do I need to reinvent myself again to be more attractive to people to hire me or do something? And then I kind of realized that, well, actually, no, I mean, I've built my, you know, I don't have a career. It's almost like I have, have this experiential path that I've been on for the last 20 years. And it's led to this combination of what I am today. And I actually quite like what I am today. So it's a case of, you know, if people wanted to engage with me, they had to understand that I just didn't fit into their model or a model or a box that they wanted. So that's been a quite an interesting journey in terms of discovery and affirmation as to who I am and to be comfortable with that. And obviously having all that time to reflect has made me realise that I am actually quite comfortable in what I am today. It would be great if everyone could have that kind of introspection, I think, and not have to panic and think I need to remake myself to fit where I need to be. I think people need to realise that you all have, we all have skills and experience and we should value that you know, yes, we all suffer from imposter syndrome and things like that an awful lot. But I think once we put a value on our experience, then we're able to drive forward a little bit better. And I think that's missing for some people.
0: It gives you the ability also to realize that you can't define where you'd be heading towards when you don't know if that position is going to be there in the future. So, you know, the introspection and the frustrating part is we we both are exposed to a lot of people that are waiting for that big answer and they're not going to do anything until you you get there. Well, the pressure you were put under, the pressure I was put under, made it so that we transformed on the fly without really knowing if what we were heading toward was really a destination or simply a stopping spot, or if you're even going the right direction at all. Yeah. You know, so we have an event business and, and that's changed dramatically. But I think the fact that the it's like mercury on linoleum that you go, it's really hard to get a grasp for what it's going to all look like in the end. For those who continually say, I'm going to go to where that is, but I'm also going to take a lot of time figuring out what do I need as a basis? And what am I not willing to give up on? It's more like the family and everything else. And, and you know, part of that also is how do I block out all the noise yeah. that is everywhere right now, which is is the silent dynamic that we don't really talk about that much because everybody's experiencing it. But it's, it's huge because you're dealing in a situation that, the negative aspect of everything going on and without any knowledge of what the future is going to bring, or or as you said, is there going to be like the flu where we have to deal with this forever? Well, what does that mean? Does it mean 50% capacity at restaurants? So you have to completely look at how you have an eating establishment with that, or, or do you end up as many of the eating establishments have done? You have all these geodesic domes outside so that outside dining can continue, but it's innovation. When at the end of the day, you're in an innovation spirit mode where you're saying, okay, I got to rethink everything, but I'm not standing still, which is, is a dynamic in and of itself, I guess. The routine,
1: I suppose, is always constantly changing as well. So when people say, you know, what's your daily routine? My answer is I don't really have one you know, I get up and then it's a question of um, what do I do after the cup of tea? And I'll decide after the cup of tea, I don't sit with a a planner because as we've seen, the joke is, you know, I want a refund on my 2020 planner I bought. Um, (laughs) As we've seen, you know, planning has literally been thrown out the window because we are living through a, a, a situation that is dynamically changing every day, whether it's politically or whether it's driven by, the medical side uh, and the science side of, of the pandemic. But the only routine that I really steadfastly stick to is getting out of the house at some point, whether it's for a walk or whether it's to go somewhere or whether it's to the gym. Uh, you know, I really struggled during the severe lockdown because... The health side was taken away from me in a sense, you know, and I really liked that sort of mental release and physical release of going to the gym, you know, the endorphins or whatever it is that's kicking around us when you start lifting weights and things like that. That for me was a, a bit of a challenge. It's back, thankfully, but it, it was interesting to see how a physical activity could affect you mentally as well
0: when it's been withdrawn. I don't want to end the showing up sour note, but it kind of becomes that way when you say. And we have winter coming. (laughs) So, you know, and so some of that dynamic of getting out, it'll be changed dramatically, but Mm. it's on the mental side. But it's going to be interesting. I think, you know, what you've shown is that the future is undefinable right now, Mm. but that you can't stand still waiting for that resting spot. And I think banking is used to doing that. They're used to going towards a destination. And it's kind of fun to look at the strategic planning process that's going on in most financial institutions right now, where you go, you know, how do you define what your future is going to be when that future may be different by January 20th? I really thank you for being on the show today. I read a lot about what you've done. Um, can you tell people a little bit about your book? I know it hasn't come out yet, but how they can get a hold of um, your book ahead of time. The book is
1: called The Future Starts Now. It's co authored by myself and another futurist called Bronwyn Williams. You can get copies or pre order copies on Amazon, Target, Walmart, lots of other online sites. Um, it's published by Bloomsbury. It comes out um, April 15th next year. It's currently in the final editing stages. So, you know, I'm really pleased that the heavy lifting side is, is, is off my table. I think we had about 20 contributors as well. So, it literally covers business, society, and technology from multiple facets and hopefully it will give some insight into where the business society and technology is going, what are the pitfalls, what are the things to avoid building a, a dystopian society, which we seem to be heading towards at rapid pace. But there should be something for everyone. It's, it's got a broad, Reach a broad appeal, kind of thing. So, uh, yeah.
0: I realized that uh, one of my dear friends, Joanna Bloomstrom, is yeah. one of your contributors, uh, talking about the future of teams or psychology of teams. And and uh, there's a lot of people that that people recognize. It's going to be interesting if any of those uh, projections and views of the future change in any way with between now and April. It's kind of yeah. hard to write books nowadays. It is, but, yeah, yeah. We were, we were told under no circumstances, mention the pandemic because it
1: kind of puts a very fixed stake in the ground when you're writing a book. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. it can be
0: outdated very quickly, so yep. yeah, yeah. Well, good luck with that and we hope to have you back on the show. And uh, thanks again, Theo, appreciate your time. We'd love it, thank you. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform, rated as a top five banking podcast. If you enjoyed today's interview, please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to give our show a five-star rating. This means the world to us and allows us to get this caliber of guests you've heard from us in the past. Also, be sure to catch my recent articles in the financial brand and check out the research we're doing on digital transformation, retail banking innovation, The Digital Customer Experience and Financial Marketing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Longbreak, and audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. I'm your host, Jim Bruce. Until next time, have a great week.